2: As a student of the Western theater where armies move hundreds of miles and where the war was ultimately won and lost, I sometimes view the Eastern theater as a prolonged traffic jam up and down I-95, especially the battles of 1864 and especially the siege of Petersburg. Grant attacks Lee's right flank, Lee extends the right flank, Grant attacks the right flank again, Lee extends again, repeat, and so on. If you share that view, you might not expect a 600-page detailed account of just four days of the Petersburg Siege, September 28 to October 2, 1864, to change your mind and make the battle come alive as few accounts of Civil War fighting have done. But that's what happens with Richmond Redeemed, the Siege at Petersburg, by Richard J. Summers, who will join us tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
0: Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app, If you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, the Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by AirCast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by AirCast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
1: O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
2: And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. The sun is shining low in the sky on this June evening in 2015, as I sit here in the chair's office for the penultimate Civil War talk radio show from this location. I'll be moving down the hall uh, later in the summer, but I'm not speaking as the chair of the history department or even a representative of ECU in any way, nor will my guest speak for anything but himself. We're all doing our own crazy thing here, as always, on Civil War talk radio. Well, it is a beautiful night. I have the shades down because the sun would be shining right into the office at this moment. Uh, but it'll be dark soon. Uh, wherever you are, perhaps listening, who knows what time of day it is? The miracle of the internet allows us to listen to podcasts whenever we want. Uh, it is uh, last week at this time. I was talking about the college women's world series. My my team, my Michigan Wolverines, finished second. This week in the sporting world, our attention turns to the Women's World Cup uh, International Soccer, and I'm not going to say anything about it at all, lest I jinx the USA women uh, as I did the Michigan softball team. We'll just see how they do going forward. By the time you listen to this, maybe they will have won several games, but let's not comment on that. Here at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters... Lots is going on. Uh, It's quiet in the hallways. There's a few summer classes taking place. Online distance education has really cut into summer school here at ECU. I'm sure it's happening elsewhere. Students who need to take a class over the summer because they failed it in the spring now find it much cheaper to go live at home and take it online than to rent a house for the summer or an apartment uh, with their friends. So our online numbers have gone up and our face-to-face numbers have gone down, and it's even quieter than usual here. It's also quiet here on the third floor of Brewster. Uh, It's not quiet on the other side of Brewster in the D-Wing. They're knocking out walls between classrooms to make the rooms bigger so we can teach more people at a time. This is efficient. Taxpayers like it. The legislature likes it. I have proposed that we add it to our advertising, come to ECU, not like the old days where your professor would know you face to face, now you'll just be a dot in a giant room, that's what everybody wants. But of course it's not what students and parents want or professors want, Uh, but we have to be efficient and we do have to reduce the number of really tiny classes. Uh, Anyway, it's quiet here because uh, the number of faculty is not only reduced, but it also means uh, I get to move my office. Uh, I will step down from the department chair role in August of 2015, and already I'm looking at the wall of Civil War volumes and thinking, how will I fit these into the new office down the hall that I'll be occupying? The good news is we have lost so many positions over the past several years that we have a couple vacant offices, and I plan to uh, scavenge bookcases out of those offices and put them in will become my new place, the new Civil War Talk Radio headquarters in September, and thus there will be plenty of room for all the books that we've talked about, and room to buy more books, so go to www.impedimentsofwar where you find out who's up next on the show, and from there you can uh, contribute to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund, and help me buy books to fill the new shelves that I'll soon have. Uh, you can find out from the uh, Impediments of War, that the next guest, next week's show, will be uh, Michael Schein. He's the author of John Surratt, the Lincoln Assassin Who Got Away, Uh, an interesting uh, legal and uh, uh, murder mystery. Well, not a mystery. We know who done it, but an interesting book on uh, uh, the flight of John Surratt after the Lincoln assassination. And after that, it'll be summer hiatus. I'll be doing all kinds of fun things here in the office reading more books, lining up more guests, getting ready for the fall season. We'll come back at the uh, beginning of September 2015 with more shows on Civil War Talk Radio. So don't go anywhere. We'll be back with lots more. Tonight we have a guest who I've been telling myself for years, oh, you got to get this guy on the show. Others have said the same thing. And... uh, Finally, it, it worked out, the publisher sent me a note that uh, Richmond Redeemed, the Siege at Petersburg, is coming out in a new uh, 25th, uh, is that right, 81, no, 81, 91, no, 35th year anniversary, uh, new edition, and so I went over to our library and said, let me let me read that, uh, let me read the old one while the new one's on the way in, which they've ordered, and uh, I'm I'm glad it happened because we now get to talk to the author of one of the most interesting Civil War books I've had the chance to read in some time. Uh, the author is Richard J. Summers. And, uh, Dick, are you there?
3: I'm here, Jerry. Look forward to talking
2: with you on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Uh, you... Uh, th- th- this is the, the magnum opus, and we'll talk about this uh, through the evening. But if you would, uh, share with me and with our, our listeners a little bit about your background. What uh, what got you into Civil War study uh, to begin with, that so we start at the beginning?
3: Well, people say that I have a, a good memory, but even I cannot recall how far back it was when I became interested in military history. I've revived recollections from third grade, proving that I already had that interest that far back. And believe me, third grade was a long time ago. Uh, But my interest uh, in much of grade school was in ancient and medieval uh, military history. Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Trajan, Richard the Lionhearted, Frederick Barbarossa, uh, the great uh, commanders and warrior kings of, of antiquity and, and the Middle Ages. But in September of 1955, coming up on the 60th anniversary now, I had the great good fortune to read Bruce Catton's three volumes on the Army of the Potomac, Mr. Lincoln's Army, Glory Road, and Stillness at Appomattox. And he was such a gifted writer that he won me over to the Civil War and I've been interested in the Civil War ever since then.
2: So you did you study history in college? Did you assume this was a, would be a career for you? Well I
3: always had the, the interest in history um, but I wasn't sure that it would be my career. However, my uh, first semester my freshman year at carleton college again i had the the good fortune to have a an exceptionally uh, influential professor uh, ronald Rader. his specialty was european history the the anglo-zarist conflict over afghanistan in the uh, mid 19th century uh, and talk about a, a timely topic but uh, <laughs> That was his interest, but he set such a wonderful example, and he was so so open and, and receptive to me uh, that I made the decision the first semester of my freshman year that history would be not just an avocation, but my vocation. So I was a history major at Carleton, and then for my doctoral work, I... Uh, had the the great privilege of studying under Frank Vandiver when he was at Rice University. And, uh, well, he's Joe one Harsh, Emery Thomas, uh, uh, Mike Davis, uh, John Wakeland, Judy Gentry, Tom Connolly
2: were all graduate students at the same time that I was there. Well, that, that's really an honor roll of, of Civil War historians that you got to work with. So you... Did you the book uh, Richmond Redeemed? Uh, you say in the introduction grows uh, from your thesis, uh, your your doctoral dissertation. Yes. Did you did you how did you come to that topic?
3: Okay. Well, I, I mentioned that I I became interested in the Civil War uh, in eighth grade, and throughout all of my studies, I wanted to open up something new to to look at. Uh, various uh, subjects that had not received much attention Uh, so I I didn't think that we needed another book on uh, uh, the Battle of Gettysburg uh, certainly not the 20th book on the 20th Maine at Little Round Top now people are welcome to study those topics if they prefer to do so and and I respect their right in, in that regard but I wanted to open up something new and so I was attracted to a range of possibilities and remember we're talking about the, the early 1960s now uh, the Battle of Prairie Grove the siege of Mobile in March and April of 1865 the uh, operations uh, of Longstreet against the Army of the Ohio not your Army of the Ohio but the second Army of the Ohio in East uh, Tennessee Knoxville. after the siege of Knoxville uh, and um, th- those were ideas that uh, I had in, in my head, but um, I chose instead to, to look at the siege of Petersburg, and even there, not so much the crater, the cattle raid, five forks, which had received some attention, but yes. to try to open up something new Uh, at Carleton. i wrote my senior paper on what i call the fourth offensive the the august operations the second deep bottom globe tavern second ream station so just in a chronological sense as my graduate study came immediately after my my uh, senior year at Carleton, so did i move on to the fifth offensive uh, which became the topic of my dissertation
2: so, for for a lot of people listening, uh, they may be familiar with the details of Grant's campaign. But uh, I know my mother is listening. Uh, it's the anniversary of my dad's birthday. Happy birthday, Dad. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the let's give a, a brief summary of of how of what happens uh, in, in the summer of '64. How Grant gets to Richmond. Uh, Could you sort of give us a quick thumbnail of that?
3: Well, General Grant had uh, served very successfully in the Western theater and had won a a series of battles that had strategic benefits for the Union war effort. Uh, He earned successively Army command, theater command, And in March of 1864, he was promoted to General-in-Chief of the entire Union Army. Uh, He chose to uh, make his headquarters in the field in the Eastern Theater, not to take command of the Army of the Potomac, but to accompany it uh, in its operations uh, directly against Robert E. Lee. So Grant is functioning in a tripartite capacity as General-in-Chief, of the entire Union Army with responsibility for uh, all the land efforts by federal forces as the Eastern Theater commander and as commander of what I like to call Army Group Grant, to use an anachronistic but accurately descriptive term of the forces that he directed immediately against General Lee. And with these forces, he broke... uh, Winter quarters in central Virginia in Culpeper County in early May, across the Rapidan River, and engaged in a series of battles that would carry him uh, from the wilderness through Spotsylvania, North Anna, a Cold Harbor, to the outskirts of Richmond. In almost every one of those battles, Grant was defeated tactically. But in the higher domains, of operations and strategy, Grant succeeded because he retained the initiative and forced the Confederates back ever more closely to their capital. And then in mid-June of 1864, he moved from the Cold Harbor area northeast of Richmond across the Chickahominy River, across the peninsula, across the mighty James River itself, a tidal river and moved against Petersburg, the rail center of the Confederate capital. His vanguard overran the, the outer defenses of Petersburg, but was not able to capture the city. And um, thereafter, the siege of Petersburg began, which would last
2: for uh, over nine months until early April of 1865. I'm going to step in just for a minute. We'll take a short break and pick up with what happens, uh, how we get to, and and talk about the fifth offensive, a series of offensive that Grant launches against uh, Richmond. With our guest today, Richard J. Summers, author of Richmond Redeemed, The Siege of Petersburg, The Siege at Petersburg. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
1: O W-I-C-Z-G at ECU dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
2: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Dick Summers, author of Richmond Redeemed, The Siege at Petersburg. We talked a bit in the first segment about how Lee's and Grant's armies get to Petersburg. By the end of the summer of 1864, you've got these two armies facing each other. It's called the siege, uh, but it's not a a classic siege like at Vicksburg where the defenders are surrounded. Lee's army has communications to the outside world. By rail, they could leave any time. They just know that if they do, there goes Petersburg and there goes Richmond. So Grant won't let them leave. And so they face each other across uh, no man's land. Most of us have read uh, about battles you mentioned in, in the first segment, like the crater, the famous attempt to mine under the Confederate lines, but your book is about the, the fifth offensive, as you name it, uh, one of multiple attacks, Grant launches, against Lee's line. Why why this particular one? Was it, was it a battle that could have been decisive? Could this offensive have broken Lee's line and captured Petersburg?
3: It, it could very well and uh I should explain in in this regard the concept of what I call uh, offensives i I have yes. proposed this way of looking at the siege of Petersburg and um, uh, the National Park service. Uh, which is responsible for uh, historic lands both at Petersburg and Richmond that relate to the siege, and most historians who have subsequently written or spoken about the battle uh, have adopted this framework for looking at mm-hmm. uh, Unlike Gettysburg, Chancellorsville, uh, Chickamauga, in which the uh, fighting goes on uh, unabated with great fury for a day or several days, uh, soldiers simply could not have sustained that intensity of conflict uh, for over nine months. They were in immediate uh, proximity to each other uh, across the no man's land, as, as you rightly say, uh, east of Petersburg, which was within firing range of artillery and even of uh, sharpshooters. Uh, there would be uh, uh, continuous uh, uh, Intermittent uh, shelling and, uh, and sniping, but heavy fighting would erupt in what I call offenses. They would invariably be initiated by General Grant uh, in an effort to cut the Confederate supply lines leading into Petersburg, which was Richmond's link with the rest of the Confederacy, and also to capture the Confederate capital itself. Uh, His first offensive was his initial attack on Petersburg. He had launched three subsequent offensives between late June and mid-August. And now at the end of September, he saw uh, major opportunities uh, to launch his fifth offensive. Most Confederate forces by that period of the siege, were south of James River, indeed south of the Appomattox River. There were only a, a handful of Southern forces on the peninsula protecting Richmond, and in General Grant's uh, initial attack in the Fifth Offensive, the Army of the James was to overrun uh, these few defenders and capture Richmond itself before Lee could bring his troops up from Petersburg. Meantime, General Meade, with the Army of the Potomac, uh, representing the left wing of Grant's army, was to stand ready to take advantage of uh, any weakening of Confederate troops and to move out south of Petersburg to try to cut the South Side Railroad, which by that period of the siege was the last
2: railroad leading into Petersburg so this this two-pronged attack you know could have succeeded in two ways could have captured uh the the James army could have captured Richmond itself and if Lee had rushed enough troops up north to stop it then Meade could have broken through on the Petersburg front uh, yes yeah. one thing i want to say about the, the book it's in my notes before i forget is the maps are really good uh they they make clear where these Events are happening both on an operational scale than on a tactical scale. Um, I, I miss that there are there there's not a a, a yard what do you call it a, a, a key that shows the distance uh, on some of them. But the the clarity with which they echo what you describe in the text is outstanding. Oh, and I, I, I'm sure you know we've all read books where. The author talking about this place or that place, and you look in vain to find it named on the map. Uh, or they describe people going to the left, but the arrow on the map shows them going to the right. And on these maps, it's right there. You, you can really uh, see what's going on, and it's very, very helpful. Uh, Thank you. And uh, making the maps was quite a
3: challenge, unlike Gettysburg, Antietam, Chickamauga, uh, battlefields that were well-mapped and well-represented in the official records, Atlas. Uh, There were no tactical maps that I have ever been able to find of the Siege of Petersburg. Uh, There were the overall operational maps uh, drawn by... uh, Uh, General Mickler and and General Humphreys after the the war, but not tactical maps showing actual troop dispositions. So I had to create these maps as best I could try to understand the situation uh, for my dissertation and then for the first edition of the book to send my hand-drawn maps uh, in and a professional cartographer transform them into what you see in the in the book today, and, and thank you for uh, for saying that they are so clear and and conduce so well to understanding these operations.
2: Well, they they do. I was with a tour last week. Uh, I've been telling listeners about it. The Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours group, and one place we visited was Pamplin Park, uh, where uh, Doctor Boyceau's house is uh, hmm. is still there as a uh, the museum yeah, uh, and that that house shows up on these maps, and to be able to look at uh, the maps and put your finger down and go, yeah, I was just there that uh, uh, that really adds something to it uh, so in in describing the the battles you you describe both uh, there over these four days there's a union right flank attack, the army of the james uh there are plenty of dramatic moments. Uh, describe, you describe the charge of the U.S. Uh, colored troops, the U.S.C.T. at New Market Heights, and then the the capture of Fort Harrison. the, the road to Richmond appears to be open. Uh, then we have the attack uh, further south. Meade's army breaks through. It looks like uh, they'll get all the way to Boyton Plank Road. They're going to cut off Lee's last line, and Petersburg will fall and that doesn't quite happen then the next day uh, there's a confederate counterattack and uh, at least in the planning it looks like well they'll just cut off the union spearhead and knock out a third of lee's Ar- or a third of meade's army and it'll change the the pattern of the war and back and forth and every time it's almost decisive and we never quite get there why is that well
3: I, I would suggest two uh, possible explanations. One, of which might be unique to the armies in the siege of Petersburg. The other, more general for Civil War armies and probably armies in uh, any period of history. The unique aspect is that by the time the armies reached Petersburg... They were tired, physically and psychologically. The term combat fatigue was not to be found in the medical lexicon, but that's not to say that the condition did not exist. Even experienced soldiers who had been fighting uh, since the summer of 1861 had never engaged in uh, warfare such as general grant waged with almost non-stop battles between May 5th and uh, June 23rd of 1864. Uh, one reason that Petersburg became a siege was to give the armies rest while they were still prosecuting the war effort. They didn't go into summer summer camp uh, the mm-hmm. way the armies had uh, had done after Gettysburg for between uh, early August, when the Gettysburg campaign ends, and, and mid-September of 1863. Uh, but at least in the trench lines around Petersburg, they could have some respite from the incessant fighting. But e- even so, the, the forces had somewhat lost their cutting edge. Uh, the armies had suffered uh, terrible casualties uh, from the wilderness uh, down to, uh, to Petersburg, and uh, they did not have the uh, the fighting effectiveness with which they had begun the campaign. So it's harder to get results. And um, frankly, uh, the Union uh, corps commanders, uh, especially Governor Warren and, of the Fifth Corps and John G. Park of the Ninth Corps, uh, had learned the hard way to uh, to be apprehensive when they ventured into new country. And and uh, Peebles Farm and Jones's Farm, uh, south of Petersburg, was new country for them. They'd never been in that area before. But whenever they had ventured into new country, starting in the wilderness and going right on down to Globe Tavern in, in mid-August of 1864, almost invariably the Confederates had counterattacked. So they had to be on guard against the the virtual certainty of a counterattack. And at what point does prudence become precaution, become caution, become hesitancy, become paralysis? These factors are all coming into play uh, in the generalship. But to speak more broadly beyond the fifth offensive, for all of the Civil War and, and for other wars, it's so easy for us to, to sit here, and, and thanks to the miracle of Civil War, talk radio, to engage in this delightful conversation between Pennsylvania and North Carolina. Uh, so easy to, uh, to look at the maps, and thank you mm-hmm. again for, for lauding the clarity of the maps. But as you and I and our listeners very well know, but we need to remind ourselves of it from time to time, the situation was not at all clear at the time to the, the corps and division commanders who would have to fight these battles. Uh, they could, did not have the Olympian overview that, that we can see from a battle map all they could do was to see across the field to the wood line just beyond and what lurked on the far side of the wood line or even within the woods remained to be seen and so that introduced elements of uh, of caution into how they they conducted their their operations and we need to be careful not to be hypercritical of these these officers, and I try not to be. I simply try to understand them, to commend them for their strengths and their ability to overcome obstacles and to penetrate the fog of war, uh, but to make due allowance for uh, understandable limitations on their conduct of, of operations. And as I write about military history, my approach is to let the battles and the operations unfold hour by hour, day by day. They carry the reader along as the troops march to the battlefield, deploy into line of battle, charge the enemy works. And will they capture the works or will their attack be repulsed? Read ahead to the next page or the next chapter and and find out. But I don't get ahead of myself and tip off the results History is not fiction, but history is interesting. And I think our responsibility as historians is to capture and convey the interest that is inherent in the historical experience.
2: You know I, I think you do an excellent job of that. And I wonder if the the obscurity might be too strong a word, but I'll, I'll use it the obscurity of these specific battles, the Battle of Poplar Spring Church. Locations like Peebles Farm uh, works to the benefit of this book in that anyone writing about Gettysburg can cannot capture the full drama of Pickett's Charge because mm. we all know how it's going to end. Yes. Whereas yes. when I'm reading about the battle of the Harmon Road, let's say, before I open this book, uh, I've been studying Civil War my adult life, and I would be hard put to say where the Harmon Road was, but now I feel like I've been there, and I realize I actually have been there yeah. uh, and i i i do I don't know as I'm reading your paragraph on on yeah. uh the advance of Parks Corps are they going to break through or not uh because they might and get thrown back and uh I do know that they're not going to capture Petersburg at the end mm-hmm. of the day uh yeah. but the tactical goes back and forth, and that's a very good point you make that, that yeah. The, the, and, and, and you're quite interest. right.
3: The, these battles were unknown before I, uh, I, I explored them. I didn't mm-hmm. realize how important they were in nearly netting Richmond or Petersburg or both mm-hmm. uh, until I, I did my research uh, and came across the documentation that Lee was prepared to abandon Petersburg in September of 1864, if necessary to save Richmond, so dire was the peril to the capital. Uh, But because those battles were not well known before I I wrote on them, uh, it is possible to uh, uh, have more of a a veil of of mystery uh, about them that uh, uh, we can penetrate with the armies as uh, as they venture forward into unknown country.
2: One other thing I, I liked, I, I really, as I was reading this, I have read other uh, you know, micro-tactical accounts of battles I'm sure many of us read. For example, uh, Harry Fonds's books on Gettysburg, oh, yeah. uh, where you've got you know really uh, almost down to the individual level what people are doing, uh, and there's an appetite for that. Uh, I find a little goes a long way. I, I enjoy some of it, but... I, I don't go back to it regularly, and I, I had a little trepidation when I started reading this that this would be more of that. And I found myself not bogged down in the detail. Occasionally, I would sort of glance over a page, go, "Okay, a lot of regiments there," uh, and and go to the next page. And I think I put my finger on one thing that maybe makes the style work so well. And just to tease our readers, our listeners, I should say, I'm going to stop here. We're going to take a short break, come right back uh, more with Dick Summers, author of Richmond Redeemed, The Siege at Petersburg, uh, a fascinating account of four days of the epic siege. Uh, We'll talk more with him in just a moment. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
1: The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk. Gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
2: talking today with Richard J. Summers, author of Richmond Redeemed, the Siege at Petersburg. We've been talking about the this very detailed account of four days of battles, the Battle of Poplar Spring Church, uh, and other engagements in the midst of the siege, and how this detailed account really brings out what happened and shows the... Uh, astonishingly decisive possibilities that were out there for some of these engagements that many of us otherwise would be unaware of. Uh, So Dick, one thing that struck me about your style in writing is that the bulk, uh, the the, the great bulk of the book is written in your voice. There's a, a tendency in modern battle accounts to quote primary sources, quote the soldiers, letters and diaries, uh, Which, on the one hand, brings us the voice of those who are really there, but after the forty-fifth time someone has described uh, the bullets were zipping past me, uh, it it becomes a little bit like okay, they've cherry-picked a lot of quotes here. Uh, You don't do that. You do tell some stories, some some firsthand stories, and you cite the book extensively. But you tell it all in your own voice, uh, more like Bruce Catton, perhaps. Did you do that consciously? I'm
3: tremendously complimented the the reference to Bruce Catton, and I, I would never uh, presume to aspire to such eminence uh, myself with his gift. But um, yeah, I, I have a great belief in using manuscript sources. And as you'll see in, in the bibliography, uh, we had a... Uh, a prodigious number of uh, both printed and manuscript uh, uh, primary sources, um, mm-hmm. or over 900 such accounts that were actually used in the book, among many thousands that I uh, that I looked at. So I, I respect that source and i am really uh, dependent on that source for much of the uh, the information, especially about the Confederate Army, because so few uh, official accounts. Uh, Survive from General Lee's forces, but I felt it was my responsibility to try the best I could to analyze and synthesize the sources and present them as my own um, uh, narrative and assessment of of what happened, with now and then a uh, pithy quote or a uh, a, a moving uh, expression. Uh, Uh, credited to a given soldier, but not just long passages that Private Smith said and the next three paragraphs quote him and Mm -hmm. then Captain Jones commented and devote a whole page to what he had to say. That's a different style of writing. I respect other authors' styles, but my style is as I have described
2: it and as you have perceived it. No just to uh be uh not all uh, sweetness and light uh in terms of style, let me uh, ask uh qu'est que c'est avec les voltageurs? jour uh, <laughs> you, <laughs> you, you use that term for skirmishers a lot and yeah. uh, uh, why no other civil war author does that why why do you do that oh
3: I just I have a respect for the army of napoleon and, and the the french army and i, I would occasionally uh use um some terms like, like that uh, uh uh the langue française what was uh, the langue de guerre at the time of the, the 18th century and really on into the, uh, the middle of the, uh, the 19th century. And there are many French military terms that would be used by English-speaking officers, including American officers, without being uh, translated. Now, I, I, I will ag- acknowledge that... Um, Voltigeur is not a term one one finds uh, in common parlance in, in Civil War writing today. There had been a regiment of Voltigeurs as, as recently as the Mexican War, whose lieutenant colonel was none other than Joe Johnston in mm. the uh, the storming of uh, of Chapultepec. Uh, so, the U.S. Army was was using uh, that concept uh, uh, in the Antebellum period, uh, where Johnston and so many other officers had uh,
2: uh, had experienced war for the first time. One other style point that sort of stuck out uh, when describing the the USCT, uh, you would occasionally describe them as the the Negro troops, mm-hmm. which caused me to go back to the front of the book and say, "How old is this? Is this from nineteen sixties? Uh, okay. it's, it's such a dated word." And oh. so I, I'm curious. Did you revise that in the the new printing of the book, or, and if not, what what changes do we find in the the new edition?
3: Well, um, let, let let me speak to your immediate question, mm-hmm. and
2: then uh, I'll I'll address
3: more more broadly. Um, sure. Uh, the the, the follow on uh, question. Uh, it's very much a term of respect that was used in. Uh, uh, the 1950s and 60s when I began writing, and I continued to use it with respect as I uh, write um, the 150th anniversary edition. There is no mm-hmm. uh, uh, pejorative or uh, invidious uh, connotations. And mm-hmm. these battles, I should point out, and this is something that I explicitly emphasize in the new edition, um, I realized it, but I didn't emphasize it in the, the original printing. Um, but Chaffin's Bluff, or Third Battle of New Market Heights, was the biggest battle and the bloodiest battle fought by black troops in the entire Civil War. Many of the famous battles by black troops involve just one or two regiments. Fifty-fourth Massachusetts at at Battery Wagner, two regiments at uh, at Port Hudson, one regiment at Honey Springs, two at Jenkins Ferry, uh, a battalion at, at Fort Pillow, a, a brigade at at, at Tupelo. Uh, here we have uh, four brigades heavily engaged and incurring far more casualties than in any other battle of the whole Civil War uh, in which black troops were, were involved. So the, um, the importance of the contributions of the U.S. colored troops uh, comes through very clearly, and I welcome the opportunity to affirm it, just as I affirm the contributions by white troops in the Union Army and by Confederate soldiers. Uh, the book does not have a, uh, a northern... Uh, emphasis or a southern emphasis it has an American emphasis and I try to cover cover both sides and all of the uh, the forces of uh, of both sides as uh, thoroughly and as respectfully as I
2: can well, And I think it achieves that um, so tell us what else is new in the the hundred and fiftieth anniversary edition okay
3: um, the the book was uh, originally published in Uh, 1980, as the uh, featured selection of the History Book Club for Christmas of that year, and then the trade edition uh, came out in January of 1981. Well, 34 years have gone by since then, and during that time, I've engaged in, in conversation with fellow scholars such as we're doing tonight. I've spoken to uh, Civil War roundtables from Maine to Seattle to the, the Gulf Coast and uh, uh, talked with fellow civil warriors in, in my work at the, uh, at the Army War College and the Army Heritage and Education Center uh, to talk with, with researchers and, and students I've gained new insights and, uh, and new perspectives, new thoughts. And, of course, new sources have become available, and, and I, uh, I have uh, cited uh, uh, 170 new sources in the book uh, on top of the 1,200-plus sources that were used in the original book. There are over 1,400 sources in this, this new book. Um, And um, there are nine new photographs, including a photograph that has previously been mislabeled in the Library of Congress and thus has been overlooked, identifying where the black soldiers fought at New Market Heights. Uh, It's a clear photograph taken of the western end of of New Market Heights, uh, where the, the heavy fighting occurred. And that is properly identified for the first time in this book there are two new appendices uh, covering the timeline uh... of this of the fifth offensive and uh... identifying the uh... all of the uh... officers who are are featured in the book and the various synonyms that i uh... that i use for them uh... their rank their command uh... the states uh... with which they are associated Probably the most significant new element comes uh, in consequence of my teaching in the Army War College uh, beginning in the spring of 2008, and even in uh, nominal so-called retirement, I continue to teach one course in the Army War College each year. War Mm -hmm. College students are lieutenant colonels and colonels, Navy captains, with the potentiality to become generals and admirals. The Army, the other armed forces, don't send them to the war college to make them better scholars. They send them to the war college to make them better soldiers. And so we use history in this regard to help the professional military officer with his... uh, Uh, development of his capacity for high command. And I hope that over the years that I've been teaching in the War College that I've been able to make some contributions in that regard. I know that my students have made contributions to me. These future generals have given me insight into generalship and the exercise of high command that has in turn informed my writing about the generalship of Grant and Lee, of of Meade and Ben Butler, Ewell and A. P. Hill, Wade Hampton, uh, Governor Warren, and the other senior commanders of the uh, Federal and Confederate armies, and. Uh, in contrast to, say, uh, nine new photographs or two new appendices, which can be uh, discreetly uh, identified, uh, all of these new analyses and assessments and perspectives and rethinkings have been interwoven throughout the entire text. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're really an integral part of the whole book. It, this is not simply a reprint. This hundred and fiftieth anniversary edition builds on the original, but with new research, new writing, new thinking, new analysis, it's a new book.
2: Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it. As I mentioned in the introduction, I've got the original here from our university library, and they've mm-hmm. ordered the new one. And I will make sure you get get a sale rung up for that, and I will. Uh, look forward to looking at it because this really is a, a fascinating book. When you talk about uh, the generalship, uh, we don't—we're we're in our last few minutes, unfortunately. But I just want our listeners to be clear: this is not just a narrative. What drives it is this analysis of leadership, and in particular, you—you you show Grant as a very subtle leader, delegating a lot of authority to his subcommanders, but not yielding responsibility. Uh, and, and if one comes away with any overall picture from this, it's the idea that Grant, as the mere butcher who just sends numbers forward, uh, is, is a fatally flawed perspective. Fatally flawed, yes.
3: That, that's one of the greatest misconceptions in all the writing about the Civil War. Some people equate June 3rd at Cold Harbor with Grant's generalship. It no more typifies his generalship than Malvern Hill characterizes Lee's generalship. I have great respect for both Grant and Lee. They had two bad days at Cold Harbor and Malvern Hill, but um, they are much better generals, and they show that throughout the the siege of Petersburg. Lee was able time and again to foil the superior uh, numbers and the initiative that Grant had at his benefit Lee bought another nine months for his, his army, his capital, and his country. And yet Grant eventually succeeded because Grant understood how to convert advantages
2: into achievements. Well, Every the, the book bring, brings from, that out. I, I apologize. We're right at the end of time. And I would be completely remiss to my uh, colleagues traveling last week if I didn't ask in, in 15 seconds, if you know the answer, Squirrel Level Road, which is the site of one of the rebel lines. Yeah. Why does a road have that name?
3: Do you have any idea? Uh, accordingly, uh, what I heard back in the colonial era, uh, a Virginia gentleman,
2: Squire Lavelle. Uh, on that road. I'm not buying that one because we have a frog level road here and I don't think there's a frog level.
3: Well, Uh, I don't know. And there's a frog level in South Carolina too, I know. Just some of the quaint
2: place names on the land that makes the Civil War so charming and engaging. So interesting. Well, listeners, if you know the answer to either of those, send them in And while you're at it, get a copy of Richmond Redeemed, The Siege at Petersburg. It's outstanding, and you'll enjoy it. Uh, Dick, I've enjoyed our conversation. wish it could go longer, but we're out of time. Thanks for being on the show. You're very welcome. I, too, have enjoyed it. And listeners, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.